Good morning. If you have a Bible, I'm going to ask you to open it to Colossians chapter 1 as we continue our series, Colossal, studying the colossal truth from the letter of Paul to the church in Colossae. Uh, Colossians 1, turn over to verse 18. And while you get there, I'll just tell you, Colossians is all about keeping the main thing, the main thing. And the main thing is Jesus. That's it. Last week, we studied verses 15 through 17, which is about Jesus being supreme over all things, over all creation. All things were created by him and for him and in him all things hold together. So we know that Jesus is Lord now over all physical creation. But now, as Paul keeps writing in this section of chapter 1, verse 18 through 20, he establishes that Jesus is not only Lord over the physical creation, but he's also Lord over his spiritual creation, which is the church, the church. So look with me in verse 18 at just the first little sentence in verse 18, uh, first part of the sentence where it says, he, speaking of Jesus, he is also the head of the body, the church. He is the head of the body, the church. And this is the big idea today that Jesus is the Lord of the church. He's the one who's in charge. And we should be thankful, really, that Jesus is the one in charge because people would be terrible at being in charge of the church. I don't know if you've ever been in a church where people were the ones who were really in charge, but it probably wasn't a good experience. Actually, it reminds me about something I studied in uh, church history, which was about the year 1400. You guys remember the old little song, Columbus sailed the ocean blue in 1492? So almost 100 years before Columbus, we get the church, the Catholic church, which by the way, there were no other denominations. There was no Protestantism at this point. Baptists certainly didn't exist at that point. So the year 1400, there was about a 40-year time span before and after the year 1400 where geopolitics sort of got a little too enmeshed with the church. And while there weren't all these other denominations and things like that, there were countries. And there were some Italians and there were some French people and there were some Germans that all could not agree on who should be the Pope, the leader of the church. And what happened is instead of just sort of figuring it out and, you know, being okay with someone else being the Pope, each of those countries decided they sort of wanted to just establish their own Pope. And so while there was one Catholic church at this time, this was a season of 40 years where there became three popes, three popes. They each had their own group of cardinals. They each had their own uh, delegations, their own administrations, their own churches that were underneath them in all these separate countries. And it took them 40 years to figure it out. This was a period known in history as the Great Schism or the Western Schism. That's a good word, isn't it? Schism. But this is what happens when Jesus is not the Lord of the church. The church splits. That's what happens. When Jesus has a place in the church, but not the supreme place, 
the church falls apart. Now, before you dog on the Catholic church too much, and we kind of get, you know, real prideful thinking like, well, that was just the Catholic church back then. Let me just remind you that it took 40 years for them to straighten it out. It takes some Baptists a lot longer than 40 years to straighten out some much smaller problems, okay? So let's not dog on them too much. This is just a reality that we have to face. Now, you might have personal memories of a church split, and this might even stir up some emotion in you. I just want to say that I recognize that, okay? But you've probably at least heard about a church split if you haven't been through one yourself when we lived in South Dakota, Jill and I, we went to plant churches up there and we planted our first church in Spearfish. We would go around town inviting people uh, that we were meeting to church and we would say, we're starting a new church and we'd tell them about what it is, where we meet. And then the first thing they would ask is, so which church did you split from? And we go, well, uh, we, we didn't. <laughs> we didn't just, we didn't split from it. But that was what they knew in that region because when people try to take charge of the church, it always leads to schisms and splits. So it can always be traced back to people not giving Jesus the supreme place in the life of the church. This may be the first church you've ever heard this in. I may be the first pastor to say this to you, but the pastor is not in charge of the church. The deacons are not in charge of the church. The committees are not in charge of the church. And even the congregation, while we are a congregational church, is not in charge of the church. Instead, we joyfully serve Jesus as the Lord and leader of our church. This is the plan, and this is what Paul's trying to communicate, is what we should do when he talks about this in Colossians 1, and he uses an analogy here as he writes that he often used in other letters to say that the church is a body. The church is a body. It's made up of many parts and many functions which are fulfilled by people who have faith in Jesus, with Jesus being both the source and the leader of it all. We're a body, and that means that the life-giving aspect of church, like the really good stuff that happens in church, it doesn't come because of how we organize, but instead it comes by recognizing that we are an organism. We're an organism, and we find true life and purpose in how we relate to one another under Jesus. This is how church should work. Being the body of Christ means that in the same way my brain somehow miraculously communicates to my feet to put one foot in front of the other so that I can walk, we ought to be following Jesus' leadership, accomplishing what he wants us to accomplish in the church. Jesus leads us to carry out his work in the world. So whatever Jesus might want to do, he does it through his body. He does it through the church, which includes us right here as a local church. But it also, by the way, includes every single gathering of believing people 
who believe in Jesus by faith across the whole globe, whether they meet in a cathedral or whether they meet in a pasture or under a tree in the woods or in somebody's home or in a nice building like ours, if they believe in Jesus and they yield to his leadership and lordship in the church, we are in the same body accomplishing the work of Jesus in the world together. Now, anyone can claim to be a church. Anybody can file for a 501c3 nonprofit, become a church. In fact, it's really kind of easy in the state of Texas to do that. Uh, you may have seen this, but there's a comedian by the name of John Oliver, and uh, he's an, an agnostic, probably at best, maybe an atheist. And a couple of years ago, he set out to prove just how easy it was to become a church, a nonprofit in the state of Texas. And so this is what he did. From New York City, he sends the paperwork to the state of Texas and then is accepted. Doesn't have any people, doesn't have any bank accounts, doesn't have any organization. Just a guy in New York City sends a letter to the state of Texas and becomes a church. That's how easy it is to become a church. And anybody can call themselves a church. But if they are not yielded to the lordship and leadership of Jesus Christ, they are not Jesus' church. And eventually they'll discover that whatever effort they made was futile without Jesus. So we're unique and important in the picture of eternity and what God is doing, Jesus is the head of the body, the church, and that means something because as Jesus is over all creation, he's also over his spiritual creation, you and me. And we must yield to him. Paul in Colossians 1 here is not just saying that Jesus is the Lord of the church, but he also teaches us why Jesus is Lord of the church. And then there's three things in verses 18 through 20 here that qualify Jesus to be Lord of the church, but also reveal the character of Jesus as our Lord. If Jesus is the Lord of your life, if your belief is in Jesus for salvation, church is not just something you go to. Church is something you are a vital part of. And as important as all creation is to Jesus, the church is just as important. So we yield to him, we submit to him, and we find out why he's our Lord, but also his character in these three things. In verse 18, we start by seeing Jesus as the Lord of the church because of his resurrection. Because of his resurrection. Verse 18 says, he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Doesn't that sound just like the theme of Colossians, that Jesus is supreme? He can't just have a place. He must have the supreme place. He's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he might come to have first place in everything. Now, the resurrection of Jesus both initiated the church and set the pace for the kind of work the church would do. Verse 15, if you look back to verse 15 in chapter one, it told us how Jesus is the firstborn, same word, over creation. 
And now we see in verse 18 that through his resurrection, we know Jesus is also the firstborn in the new creation that is coming. That's what it means, firstborn from the dead, that Jesus is up to something, that the work of Jesus is being accomplished. And and while sin twisted and tainted everything in creation past, then for creation future, as Jesus moves toward a new creation, he remains Lord over all things. He's the firstborn from the dead so that he might come to have first place in everything. Meaning as firstborn, Jesus has supreme rank over eternity past and eternity future. And the story of eternity future is the story of resurrection. It's not just a moment in time or something he did. It's the story he's writing. Eternity future tells the story as a story of resurrection by which Jesus reclaims what is rightfully his. When sin entered the creation story, like I said, it twisted and it changed the story from a story of life with God to a story of death and separation from God. Creation itself, along along with every single person, became destined for death and for separation. But Jesus faced death head on by dying on a cross and by conquering death through resurrection. Jesus is redeeming the story of creation through resurrection. So death and separation no longer have to be our story. This is what Jesus said in John chapter 11, verse 25. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me, even if he dies, will live. Everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. 2 Corinthians 5 says anyone who is in Christ is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, the new has come. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our sin, but God made us alive with Christ. Do you see how the story of resurrection plays out? Because of Jesus' resurrection. But the promise of the resurrection isn't just for people, by the way. The promise of the resurrection is for all of creation. Because Jesus started it and Jesus will finish it, he's telling the story now of resurrection. And so one day in the future, maybe today, maybe a thousand years from now, we aren't sure, but God is going to return. Jesus is going to return to the earth, which will set into motion this process of the old earth, the way we know creation to exist, to pass away. Death and sin will be conquered forever. This earth, creation as we know it, will be gone. And Jesus says in Revelation 21, look, I am making everything new. So even creation will die and be resurrected. You see how the story of eternity future is the story of resurrection? And it all started with the resurrection of Jesus. And this resurrection is how Jesus began the church and the resurrection is how Jesus will reclaim everything that's rightfully his. In other words, because of Jesus' resurrection, we are promised resurrection. 
but we're also commissioned together to the work of resurrection. To see God breathe new life into all things as they're brought under the rule and the reign of Jesus, which will be completed when he returns to make all things new. So not only is Jesus qualified to be the Lord of the church because of his resurrection, we cannot miss the character of Jesus, which is this. Jesus is a life giver. Jesus is a life giver. That's the story God wants to tell. When Jesus is given first place in anything, he breathes new life into that thing. When something comes under the reign and the rule of Jesus, he begins resurrection. He brings new life to it. Think about the story of your salvation when you believe in Jesus by faith. You die to yourself and God breathes new life into you. You're a new creation. Never the same again. This is really good news. But then you can apply that to just about anything in your life. Say, for example, your marriage. When when your marriage is struggling and you return Jesus to to his rightful place as the Lord and leader of your marriage, do you know what he does? He breathes new life into it. Something that you thought was dead or dying now can be resurrected because Jesus is the Lord and leader of that thing. And he's working resurrection. This is the story he's telling. Think about this. If you want to see new life breathed into our church or new life breathed into the communities we live in, it will only happen when we return Jesus and give him the rightful place of Lord and leader, the first place in all things. If Jesus is the main thing, then he breathes new life into all of our things, right? This is how the story of resurrection works. But to experience Jesus' resurrection to experience that kind of life under the leadership of Jesus, it means we have to first die to ourselves. We gotta remove ourselves from the place of leadership in our lives because we don't have the power of resurrection outside of Jesus Christ. Listen to what Colossians says. Paul writes in chapter three, verse nine and 10. Maybe you can even just turn over there in your Bible. Chapter three, verse nine and 10, he says, since you have put off the old self, with its practices and put on the new self, you are being renewed in knowledge according to the image of your creator. Put off your old self and put on the new self, who you are in Jesus Christ, with the promise of resurrection, then you will find yourself renewed, new life being breathed in to you. In verse 19, shows us that the resurrected Jesus is Lord of the church because of his deity. So we know he's Lord because of his resurrection, but the resurrection shows us that he's Lord of the church because of his deity. Verse 19 says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him. All his fullness dwell in him. Now this word fullness, it was key to the Colossians understanding Paul's message. 
Because as we talked about before, there was a popular ideology that was growing in popularity in that region of the world around Colossae and Ephesus, is modern day Turkey, right? And, and the philosophy or the ideology, as we've said before, was that, uh, you know, they would take several religions and sort of just sort of blend them together as if you could kind of pick and choose which one you wanted. And there would be a lot of paganism, but then you kind of throw in some Judaism and then you just sprinkle a little Christianity on top. And whatever the day calls for, you just kind of pick that thing and that's what you would experience. And unfortunately, that's not truth. It gave Jesus a place, right, but not the supreme place. And people who espoused this worldview actually used the same word that Paul uses the word fullness, but they used it in a much different way. They used it to describe the sum total of all the lesser gods or all what we know as false gods. So if you took every optional god out there for that culture and you added all of their supposed power together, ultimately you would end up with what they described as the fullness of deity. But Paul flips it on its head. He takes the same word that was used in that popular ideology and he says, no, 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 no. Jesus isn't just one of many. He's not just something that adds to the sum total. Jesus is the sum total of deity. No one else compares. Everything else that they claim to be God was false. Jesus is the one true God. He's the sum total. He is God. And that qualifies him, by the way, to be the Lord of the church because he's fully God. But what he does with his fullness reveals his character. Remember, we're talking about as Jesus is the Lord of the church. We know he's qualified because of these things, but these things reveal his character to us. He's qualified because of his resurrection. He's qualified because of his deity, but what he does with the fullness of God reveals his character. If you look in chapter 2, verse 9, Paul repeats just about this same thing. He says, For the entire fullness of God's nature dwells bodily in Christ And you, Colossians, have been filled by him who is head over every ruler and authority. So believer in Jesus is part of the church because Jesus is the fullness of deity, because he is God. What he does with that reveals his character. You know what he does? He fills you. Jesus fills you when Jesus is the Lord and leader of your life you will find fulfillment we watched this nature show last week um, in our house is one narrated by Barack Obama I don't know if you guys have seen that one but there was this uh, feature in this one episode about an animal called the surfing hippopotamus the surfing hippopotamus does this sound crazy it is it is crazy there's only one place in the world that hippos have adapted to saltwater. It's called Gabon, Africa. I may not be pronouncing that correctly. Every day, a hippo walks out of the African bush and walks across a pristine beach, and this massive animal wades out into the surf, big, huge waves, fighting waves, and then just making his way up the coastline 
until he gets to a section of land that is unreachable by land. He has to go around through the water to get to it just to come out and feed on some different vegetation. And when he's eaten his fill, he gets back in the water and he goes all the way back, up onto the beach, back into the bush, back where his home is. If this is not a metaphor for our lives, I'm not sure what is, right? The grass is always greener on the other side, is it not? Like we are every day striving for fulfillment by way of education, by way of career, by way of relationships, by way of money or food or any number of things, but none of it is lasting, is it? It seems like every day we just have to start all over Striving again, striving again, striving again, never being filled. And your life can be full of good things, yet you never achieve fullness. And so all of these false gods that we strive for, they require more from us constantly, but they never give enough to us, right? That is the definition of idolatry. And so Jesus is different. Jesus is the one true God. He is the fullness of God who never runs out and who generously fills everyone who yields to him as the Lord and leader of their life. That's why Jesus said in Matthew eleven twenty eight, 28, he said, come to me. All of you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest, not striving. I'll provide for you. I'll take care of you. I'm going to fill you with what you need. John 10, 10, he says, I have come that they may have life and have it in abundance. I mean, this is good news about Jesus. He can fill you because he is full of God. So to say Jesus is fully God, it could have been this mic drop moment for Paul against popular culture, but he continues. He continues to reveal the heart of God. Did you see in verse 19 how he said this was God's pleasure that the fullness of God would dwell in Jesus? And that thought continues that it's the pleasure of God that Jesus is the Lord of the church because of his saving work. Verse 20 says, not only has he full, the fullness of God, but through him, he's reconciling everything to himself, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So Jesus who created all things, will also be the one to give final account for all things. This word, reconciliation, to be reconciled, literally means to be accounted for. That there is a ledger, so to speak, that is spiritual. And if you're indebted to God, that will have to be accounted for. You see, everything will be reconciled to him. And those who embrace God's grace through faith in Jesus are reconciled to God in salvation, which is eternal life with God. Because why? Because Jesus paid for it. 
But to those who choose to reject Jesus, to deny the grace of God, they also will be reconciled to God, but their reconciliation will be to God in judgment, which is eternal death and separation from God. Remember the way that sin twisted the story of creation? That's where everybody's heading without Jesus. But Jesus, who's created all things, will be the one to give final account for all things. And so he stepped into the world and he made the payment for sin himself. God, Jesus, God himself did what only God could do and what no man could do. He took on the judgment of God so that you and I and anyone who lives can experience the salvation of God. This is good news. This is the saving work that sets Jesus up as the Lord of the church. Listen to what 2 Timothy chapter 2 says. The apostle Paul writes a letter to his, his mentee who's mentoring named Timothy, a young pastor. And he says, God, our Savior, wants everyone to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and one mediator between God and humanity the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. Jesus is qualified to be the Lord and the leader of the church because the church is made up of those who have been reconciled to God in salvation. But not only is he qualified because of this, his character is revealed in this too. His character is revealed because reconciliation is not free. To be reconciled means a payment must be made. Peace with God is free to all who would receive it, but it cost Jesus everything. Todd Still is a professor at the seminary I went to, and, and in his commentary on this passage, he said this, the divine solution to the human predicament was to turn an instrument of execution, the Roman cross, into an implement of peace. This is how the book of Ephesians writes in chapter two, verse 12. It says, at that time you were without Christ. You were without hope and without God. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace. Romans chapter 5 verse 1 to 6 and verse 10 say this, therefore since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. For while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For if while we were enemies, which by the way, when you're not at peace with God, you're an enemy of God. For while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. Then how much more, having been reconciled, will we be saved by his life? This is good, good news. Jesus is Lord of creation, all physical creation, but he's also Lord of his spiritual creation. And we cannot continue to exist as a church unless Jesus is 
in the supreme place with all of us joyfully serving him together. That's what it means to be a church. And we do that not just because they say Jesus is the Lord of the church, but because of these things. Jesus' resurrection initiated the church. It shows us the kind of work we ought to be doing to see God breathing new life into the world around us as he gets ready to return and reconcile all things to himself. We, we serve Jesus joyfully as our Lord because he's God, the fullness of God who then fills us as believers and we serve him joyfully because of his saving work by which if it weren't for him, we would still be enemies of God. So we serve him joyfully. He is our head, our leader our Lord, but for Jesus to be Lord of our church, he must first be Lord of our lives. I wonder, have you taken the first step to make Jesus the Lord of your life by believing in him for salvation? The book of Romans in chapter 10, verse nine, says if you call upon the name of the Lord, you will be saved. 